0: Let me tell you a story, podcast number 116.
1: It was the best of times. It was the worst of
2: times.
0: Call me Ishmael.
2: It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Was the age of never mind. It was a truth of long
0: history. No. was a little of a You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat. Step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace of your walking shoes and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve.
1: Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Today, we're talking with a multi-talented guy who over the years has worn a variety of creative hats, so to speak, and who continues to pursue creative challenges. I met Patrick Craig several years ago in a writer's group he co-leads and have enjoyed his writing and his insightful instruction. I've also appreciated his leadership. So, welcome, Patrick. We're glad to have you. You're just a busy, busy man, and we thank you for setting aside a few minutes to speak with us. and
0: Good
2: to be with you guys. To
1: work through our technical difficulties.
2: They always happen.
1: They seem to find us, or we find them. (laughs) Yep. So I'm going to begin with an off-the-wall question, and I know we've told you we're going to talk about your life and some of your creative pursuits, but because this is summer, this is a seasonal question, I've noticed on Facebook that you and your wife, Judy, are busy harvesting your garden at the moment, (laughs) and so I'd like to know. Boy, are we. (laughs) (laughs) That is a very creative pursuit. Um, I keep saying that word. I should find a new word. Uh, but gardening, um, who who would think it, but it, really gardening requires a lot of creativity in um, from the beginning to the end of it. So all that to say, do you two share that pastime or is it strictly Judy's or strictly your hobby? No,
2: no it's both of us. We work together uh, on our gardening projects and we have been ever since we got married.
0: Well, that's cool. Let's go back in time to your rock band days. Were you always interested in music? How did you get into a band? or what, What's your story on your rock band and music?
2: <laughs> well, I had an uncle who graduated from the Juilliard School of Music, and he was a brilliant pianist. And he started me on piano when I was about seven. Cool. And then he gave me a trombone when I was about nine, and I joined the school band. Uh, At the same time, my mom had a violin, and I was learning to play that. And my brother was the same. He was a trumpet player and a piano player. So we just got interested in being in groups. And by the time he was 13 and I was 12, we were playing in uh, folk groups, uh, Kingston Trio copies, and that kind of thing. And uh, then I picked up uh, string bass, and I started playing that in our little folk group. And then along came Dave Brubeck, and we started listening to a lot of him and uh, started playing some of his songs. And then we met a kid who was a total child prodigy. I was 14. I met him. He was 12. He could play any Dave Brubeck song Uh, on the saxophone so we immediately got him in a band and we had a jazz band called the intellectuals that was our first band (laughs) and all the people in that band went on to play in famous or semi-famous rock bands this was in the little town of Walla Walla where Mm. we started and uh, so we just played in all kinds of bands jazz and then the Beatles came and we started a Beatles band and I switched to electric bass and then my brother went off to the service, but he ended up in Europe and then ended up playing in the London music scene over there in the sixties. I made my way to San Francisco mm-hmm. and ended up playing in several bands in San Francisco and, and having a a modicum of success. Finally got into a band called the Tasmanian Devils and we got a contract on Warner Brothers did two albums for them. And then uh, I ran headlong into the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, (laughs) that kind of shifted my priorities. So I retired from professional music and went to Bible college and ended up uh, doing ministry as a pastor and also as a worship leader. And I met Judy in Bible college, and we did worship together for about 25 years leading worship in different churches well <laughs> so that's that's kind of the story
0: of that that's quite a timeline
1: <laughs> it's quite a switch of music unless um were those the days of um oh i don't know jesus people music and uh, christian music becoming more uh, Rock and rollish?
2: Yeah, well, kind of. And interesting, the first church I was in, there was two guys already on the pastoral staff that I had played in secular bands with. <laughs> so I immediately got into a little group with them, and, you know, we kind of played that Keith Green, Larry Norman approach, you know, a little more, little more rock and roll.
0: Yeah, I can think of a few names from back then, <laughs> but. Yeah, very cool.
2: uh, John Fisher, Larry Norman, uh, some of those guys, the Archers. Gosh, Bob Kilpatrick.
0: I think of Chuck Gerrard. Chuck
2: Gerrard, yeah.
0: Barry Maguire was somewhere back there.
2: Barry Maguire, Dion. Oh, -hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Do you uh, stay in touch with some of the guys you played with in the past?
2: I do. Uh, it's interesting because on Facebook, about half my friends are Christians and about and the other half are old rockers. <laughs> so I avoid certain discussions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you've posted some pictures, like from your album covers and um, just those past memories. Sounds like you had a, a good time. Right. I realized that maybe that wasn't always the What's the word? The secular life wasn't maybe always the best, (laughs) but it sounds like you had a good time. No, not
2: at all. And and in fact, that's what drove me into the arms of the Lord, was uh, coming to the end of myself in that lifestyle.
1: Hmm. Wow. And how old were you then?
2: Uh, When I came back to the Lord, I was about 40.
1: Wow. And you'd been playing in bands that whole time?
2: I joined the union when I was 14 years old. I was the only guy in town that could play string bass, so the old guys dragged me into the union and dragged me around to the Elks Club and the M&F Tavern, and I played swing music with the old guys.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: But that's how I got started. And yeah, I was professional all those years, but the lifestyle was, gets to you.
0: Did you write your own songs that were recorded?
2: Well, lots of them, actually, lots of them. And the thing I liked most about being in bands was that I had always wanted to be a writer. And I started writing when I was about seven, and I was editor of every school paper I was on, and I won some editorial awards and some writing awards. And I loved writing, and uh, I had aunts and grandmothers that were also storytellers. Hmm. And they encouraged me in that. And so when I went into music, my favorite part of that was writing, writing songs. And I loved writing story songs where there was more to it than just uh, yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and and I wrote some songs with some very well-known songwriters. They were recorded and and published and all that. So. I, I probably got as close to making it as you can without really making it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you have mentioned that you had a recording studio. So was that during your band times or was that later? Yes,
2: it was. I, I owned a studio from about 1976 until 1986. So actually it was 10 years and we recorded people like David Crosby and Chris Isaac, Buddy Miles, um, Mitch Mitchell, uh, Marty Ballin, uh, and a whole slew of other, Dave Jenkins from Pablo Cruz, Terry Haggerty from the Sons of Champlin, Bill Champlin, uh, a bunch of guys. It was a nice little studio.
1: Huh. Huh. Well, I would think there'd be an awful lot of creativity involved in that and working with all those oh, creative people. That's my theme tonight, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would think that the juices would really get to flow and, and you'd have some pretty fun times.
2: Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun and the guys that we had in the studio were all really creative musicians and so uh, we did some really interesting projects. Two of the first uh, Chris Isaacs album were recorded there at our studio and he later went on to be a huge hit and uh, I got engineering credits on that album <laughs> hmm. and keyboard. <laughs> well,
1: yeah. Very fun. So you said you, when you found the Lord that changed everything. Yep. So could you please tell us a little bit more about that change in your life? Well.
2: Uh, when I was 14 I had a what I believe was a genuine salvation experience I was an Episcopal kid and I had a youth pastor who was an older guy He was kind of in a backwater town and he was struggled with us for years to try to get us to be good Christian kids but he never told us about having a relationship with Jesus Christ and then one week he said i'm taking you all up to spokane and we're going to see this guy he's got a book out and he's uh it's on the new york bestseller list and his the guy's name was david wilkerson
0: oh, wow.
2: and so we went to see david wilkerson and he had Nikki cruz with him and he told the story of the cross and the switchblade and every kid in the room got saved Wow. Went up and gave their lives to the Lord. But uh, I think my youth pastor was a little jealous, so he called me into his office and told me I'd had an emotional experience and I should just discount it. Wow. So I did. And I wandered off into the hyperspatial tube world of rock and roll music. And then at a certain point several years later I realized that my life was going nowhere and I you know a friend of mine had been praying for me and I had a kind of a interesting confrontation with the Lord in my studio one night uh, and I called my friend and he said come over and so the next night I went to his house and he led me to the Lord <laughs> and so I came back to a church that was Assembly of God grew up Episcopalian and w- ended up in an assembly's church so that was interesting <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's basically the story and then I, then I had a two year window where I got to go back to Bible college and it really grounded me in the word and I uh, learned the Bible front, forward and back Although the first class I took in Bible college was Daniel in the book of Revelation. (laughs) 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 That scared the pants out.
1: (laughs) Wow. Well, I would like to know more about this encounter that you had with um, the Lord. I think you said it was in your studio.
2: Yeah, I was, you know, our studio was in an old ice house. There was no windows. So when you close the doors, Mm -hmm. it was absolutely black in there if you turned the lights off so i was asleep on the on the floor in my sleeping bag and something woke me up and i looked up and in the this pitch darkness the name of my friend who had been praying for me like appeared in six foot high letters like someone flashed a camera in my eyes <laughs> and then it slowly fell faded away and I went back to sleep and I woke up in the morning and I said something happened last night and I remembered and I I went to make a phone call Oh, how it happened was I went to make a phone call I opened my phone book right to the page with this guy's name on it
1: (laughs) so I called
2: I called him and his wife answered and she had also come out of the rock and roll music scene and I said, Donna, this is Pat Craig. And she said, praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Because they'd been praying for me for six weeks straight. Huh. And I said, you know, there's something wrong with my life. And I think it uh, has to do with my spiritual life. And she said, well, David is going to be gone tonight, but he'll be home tomorrow. Why don't you come over? So I did. And uh, my friend David was there and another friend James. And we sat together and they shared the Lord with me. And it was a pretty tender
1: time. Hmm. Wow. That's sweet. It (laughs) is. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I happen to know you more as a book author than a recording artist. So after... um, your band experience and you said you enjoyed writing songs then you got into writing books were there articles short stories in between what's the transition there
2: well when I was pastoring uh, and Judy and I pastored for about 20 years uh, I did write some non-fiction books some teaching books on music and just some of my observations about the worship in the church. And so uh, when I retired from ministry in about 2007, I had a dream one night. And my aunt, who was a great writer in her own right, appeared to me in my dream, and she, with that stern look in her eye that I remembered so well, pointed her finger at me and said you write well and so i woke i woke up in the morning and i remembered that dream and i went and i I was having some coffee and i picked up the paper and i opened it up and it opened up to the classifieds and there was a an ad for a ranch for sale in petaluma the ghost dancer ranch (laughs) and i got the whole idea for the story for the mystery of ghost dancer ranch right then <laughs> so i wrote it it took me about six weeks to finish it and that was my first book and i self-published it through a vanity press and just kept going then i found out about uh writers conferences so i went to the mount herman writers conference and i met several people there and Tried to sell my YA books, and nobody was buying right then. So a couple of years after I started going to writers' conferences, one of the guys that I met, I think you know Nick Harrison, right? Right. Well, Nick put a thing on his blog. He said, I'm looking for story ideas, and I want a one-sheet, and I'm just going to give you a hint. I like Amish stories, and I like quilting stories well i was totally unencumbered by any previous knowledge of I- either of those subjects <laughs> so, but i sent him an idea uh, for an amish quilting story and it was a quilt for jenna and he he liked the idea he said give me some sample chapters so i wrote some sample chapters and i was going back to the conference so i sent him into to steve lobby to critique and when i got to the conference he pulled me aside and he said this is really good i want to represent you on this and so we got together and then he he said go home and write the book and if it's really good i think it'll change your life Hmm. so i went home from the conference wrote a quilt for jenna between april and august Uh, then we sent it to nick and harvest house bought it and asked for two more (laughs) <laughs> and that was, I was on my way.
1: <laughs> the the beginning of your Amish, uh, what's the word, Amish writing, um, you've, what, you're five or six books down that path, aren't you?
2: I have six Amish books. I just sold a series for probably another six or seven uh, to a publisher out in uh, cool. Massachusetts. And that's going to be a cozy mystery series, like uh, an Amish Agatha Christie, or, you know, Poirot, you know.
1: Fun. That sounds really yeah. fun.
2: <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun to do. Hmm. And but I'm trying also to move out of the Amish uh, brand, huh. so I'm writing some other books too. Uh, a world. I'm writing a World War II book with Murray Pura.
1: Oh, yes. Which brings us to another question. I was going to have Steve ask it, but I know <laughs> what I want to ask, so <laughs> I'll do it. Uh, many of your books tend to be based on history and oftentimes uh, wars in history. So I'm just I'm curious about that aspect of your writing.
2: My dad was a history teacher, and he taught at the University of Oregon, and was a teaching assistant there and got his degree in history and loved. So when I was a kid in our library, we had dozens of these history books. And I read all of them and loved history. And so it became one of my favorite things. And so I love putting that aspect into my writing. Hmm. I, read, I read every book that Zane Gray ever wrote. <laughs> so, I have this adventure thing <laughs> that I that I like to explore.
1: Yeah, is that just a man thing?
2: <laughs> but the good thing about uh, Zane Grey that most people don't understand is that he was also one of the best romance writers that ever set pen to paper. Mm-hmm. I mean, his romances are cliffhangers. Some of them don't get resolved till the last mm-hmm. paragraph of the book. Mm-hmm really good stuff and he teaches about nobility and honor and how men should treat women and what happens to men who don't treat women correctly and hmm. you know it's just great stuff so i like to get that into my books too along with the war aspect and the, it's a it's a guy thing yeah
1: <laughs> we have asked Patrick to read from his latest novel, which is titled The Mennonite Queen and subtitled An Epic Saga of Forbidden Love and Powerful Faith. I'm going to read the blurb for that, and then Patrick's kindly going to read an excerpt that he's chosen from the book. Isabella, princess of Poland, is raised to a life of great wealth and leisure in the Polish royal court, destined to marry a king. But fate or divine providence intervenes when she meets Johann Hirschberg, a young Anabaptist who works in her father's stable. This chance meeting leads the young couple into a forbidden love. Together they flee Poland and embark on a dangerous journey that brings them to the city of Munster, Germany, where a violent revolution is taking place. When the revolution fails, they find refuge in the small parish of a troubled priest named Menno Simons. King Sigismund, Isabella's father, pays Catholic Bishop Franz von Waldeck to find the princess at all costs, and he pursues Johann and Isabella across Europe. Isabella does not know it, but if von Waldeck captures her, she will have to make a choice that will change the course of European history forever.
2: I'm going to read from the prologue. Sik Fata Volunt, the will of fate. The woman groaned and turned on the couch, awakened by a patter of rain rattling the windows. Outside, dark heralds of the unseasonal storm hid the moon. Distant lightning illuminated the room. An unearthly light touched her face momentarily and then faded as the gray pre-dawn took victory over the indigo night. A long roll of thunder shook the window again, and she pulled her shawl tighter, a frown furrowing her brow. I must tell him before I go. Queen Isabella of Hungary focused her eyes on the candle sputtering in the persistent draft that plagued the building. The flickering light illuminated Filippo Lippi's painting above the fireplace, Madonna and Child enthroned. Mary held the crass child the love in her eyes captured perfectly by the artist. Jesus' tiny hands clutched his mother's robe, but he was not happy, nor was he comforted. Isabella could imagine his little mouth quivering as though someone unseen was preparing to tear him from his mother's arms. Isabella blinked back tears. Ah, my Abel, my son, where are you tonight? The fire in the small stone fireplace had burned down and the still flickering coals cast dancing shadows. The mantel's lone occupant, a golden crucifix, glowed in the flickering light from the embers, like the flame on Munster's tower the night they escaped. She sighed and turned away. The edict lay on the floor where it had fallen when she had fell asleep. She reached down to retrieve it and a sharp pain shot through her arm. She groaned and picked up the document. The door creaked open and her personal servant, Angelica, entered the room. The diminutive young girl carried a tray with a cup, a small biscuit, butter, and a teapot. She set the food on the desk and hurried to the Queen's side. "'Your Majesty, you did not go to bed last night.' I looked in your bedchamber, but you were not there. No, dear, she sighed. I was reading the Edict of Toleration, and I fell asleep. I remember wondering if it has done any good toward dispelling the antagonism between religions, and then the storm woke me, and I was still on the couch. It has done much good, I am sure of it. Angelica knelt beside her queen. You must take better care of yourself, your majesty. You need more rest, and you hardly eat any more. I worry. You are not well." Isabella brushed a stray lock of blonde hair from Angelica's cheek. You, dear girl, always with my best interests in your heart, she pulled the girl close. Angelica returned the embrace. It is because you are so kind your majesty. Isabella kissed the girl's forehead. She rose off the couch and made her way to the desk, the document in hand. Angelica held her elbows, studying her. Isabella did her best to stand tall, but she had to admit the girl was right. Her strength was fading, and she often fell asleep in the midst of a task. So she lowered herself into the chair, the familiar aches and pains making themselves known once more, and spread the document before her. The sharp pain in her arm came again, but she ignored it. Her thoughts were far away. Ah, so many days since Munster, my dearest Johann. Angelica hovered by her side, her hands twisting together. Isabella noticed her maid's distress. I am fine, dear girl. Do not worry about me. Isabella indicated the tray. Would you spread my biscuit with a bit of our wonderful Transylvania butter and pour a half a cup of tea? That will give me strength for the morning, and if you please, hand me Menno's book. I will read while I eat my breakfast." The girl prepared the simple meal and fetched the requested tome from the bookshelf. She handed it to the queen, bowed, and withdrew. Isabella opened the worn copy, found her bookmark, and turned to her favorite passage. And this is the voice of Christ. You have heard it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Staring into the embers, Isabella sipped her tea, seeing Menno Simons as she'd known him so many years earlier. His soft voice and gentle words of peace and nonviolence still echoed in her heart and soothed her soul. She could imagine him teaching the Anabaptists by the light of a different fire, a Frisian fire. She heard again the words that had captivated her heart. Our weapons are not swords and spears, but patience, silence, and hope, and the word of God. With these, we must maintain our cause and defend it. The Apostle Paul wrote, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God. With these we intend and desire to resist the kingdom of the devil, not with swords, spears, cannons, and coats of mail.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Yes, thanks.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. Steve and I are both going to the microphone at <laughs> once. I heard the coconut like sound of your me. heads Conk knocking heads. <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's because they're hollow. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> we play drums.
0: <laughs> How can listeners buy your books and see what you do? Well, the website,
2: website is www.patrickecraig.com. And there's a lot of information there about my books. Also on Amazon, just look for Patrick E. Craig. You can also put in a quilt for Jenna, and you'll in, end up on my Amazon page. Also for sale in Barnes and & Noble and through all the kind of online Kobo and those, those kind of places. Apple, and on, also on Google Play. So anywhere you look for it, you can find it, I think. I have seven books out there that are for sale. Um, and working on new ones every day. So that's how you do it.
1: I know. You just keep writing and writing. Have to. All kinds of, all yep. kinds of books in the works. Do you have a writing schedule,
0: like, you know, so many hours a day or a set time? Well, or?
1: I what do you do?
2: still work for my son-in-law. I work for him three days a week, designing websites and doing promotional work and stuff and writing for him. Uh, I try to get up early in the morning. When I get into a writing groove where I'm actually really focused on doing the book, I'll get up about 5 and write till 7.30. And then on the mornings I'm not working for him, I'll write four or five hours. I try to do a couple of chapters or more a week, and that's my schedule. I can't write at night.
1: And the secret to being a prolific writer like you are is consistency.
2: Also, I have probably 60 ideas for books in my, in my folders, my WIP folder. And so I'm constantly kind of pressured to get done with stuff so I can get on to the next one. And that also helps.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Keep your mind... Um, working and anxious for the the next, just just to see how the next book yep. will work out.
2: Well, Murray and I are, I think you knew about our World War II book. Uh, we're starting yes. the second one in August, and we have this phenomenal writing schedule where we do 90,000 words in a month uh, oh. just because <laughs> I'll write a chapter and then I'll send it to him and and he'll get inspired and and send me one right back and the next thing we know the book is done
1: Wow
0: <laughs> I don't say that many words in a month
1: <laughs> that, That's pretty amazing so I'm also wondering do you have anywhere else that our listeners can contact you like yeah, or I'm Twitter on Facebook, or Facebook
2: e. Craig uh, and Twitter so both okay. those places you can find me and and link up with me. I'm on LinkedIn, so just just look for Patrick E. Craig.
0: Okay, great. Patrick, do your characters come alive? So they tell you what they're going to do. I've heard some authors say that, but others other authors say, no, I already know before I start what's going to happen. And well, what's interesting
2: what about my Amish books and a lot of the people who followed the Apple Creek Dreams and the Paradise Chronicles know the main character whose name is Jenny Hirschberger, And I used this device where I had Jenny write all of the books. But because she was an Amish woman, she couldn't publish them uh, because her church frowned on her, gaining it notoriety in the secular world. So she gives me the manuscripts to rewrite and publish under my own name. So. I have this relationship with Jenny Hershberger. Uh, and by the time I finished the fifth book, Jenny had assumed a life of her own. And she became as real to readers as she is to me. In fact, um, I gave the book to a friend who gave it to her mom to read in their book club. And at the end of that, I asked Deanna, well, what did you, would you ask your mom what she thought of the book? and her mom said to her, w- why does he need to know? He didn't write it. <laughs> so it, I guess the device worked.
0: But, so now That's classic. Uh,
2: I'm doing going to do a box set of all six of the books and call it The Journals of Jenny Hirschberger. So yeah, I do have a character who
0: oh.
1: is very much alive to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. And obviously, um, she's come alive for your readers. I think too. so. I so. think so. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I think that's all our questions for tonight. And we certainly appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And We sure do. Just interesting to hear your journey. Thank you so much yes. for
2: having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.